Um, so we're uh, in Isaiah chapter 5, and we're going to pick it up with verse 24. Verse 24. Last week we um, um, talked about these, these quote-unquote woes that were, were given to Judah. And, um, and on the heels of that, we read of the Lord's devouring fire. That's, that's frightening even to say that. Um, but it's interesting that fire is um, something we're going to see in the next chapter as well. And it's, it's uh, not for the sake of devouring, but for the sake of purification and enabling. So let's, let's read together. Uh, beginning in verse 24. Therefore, as a tongue of fire consumes stubble and dry grass collapses into the flame, so their root will become like rot and their blossom blow away as dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. On this account... The anger of the Lord has burned against his people and he has stretched out his hand against them and struck them down. And the mountains quaked and their corpses lay like refuse in the middle of the streets. For all this, his anger is not spent, but his hand is still stretched out. The word fire here is uh, used to, in a very real way, uh, communicate the nature of God's wrath. Uh, it is consuming, and it falls on the just and the just, the just and the unjust, just like the rain does. Um, the fire of God affects both the righteous and the wicked. For the righteous, it's a source of empowering. It's a, uh, the sense of, of uh, God's habitation and the, the, uh, the very real life of his spirit. We see that most profoundly in Acts chapter 2 when tongues of fire appear on the, the heads of those who are the followers of Jesus, and they are empowered by the Spirit. But here we see it also as destructive, because in the case of the wicked, the very same fire becomes a flame that consumes and devours. It devours, take note, the rottenness of sin. It devours so as to purge, to make pure. Um, and, and that really is what God is about. And it's important to understand that sin in itself is self-destructive. If you still have from last week your, your takeaways from Isaiah chapter 5, we're down on the latter part of, of that uh, takeaway there. Sin is self-destructive. Now, Isaiah here um, sees the flame of God being fueled by the 
images of dead stubble, dry chaff, rotten roots, and withered flowers. As a fire flares, when it touches that kind of dry fuel, so the anger of God is aroused by the dead rot of sin. Um, We see that in verse 25. When he says, he, that is the Lord, has stretched out his hand against them and struck them down. It sounds, sounds as though God is just arbitrarily wiping them out and maybe even overreacting, but it's not the case. You see, God's fire, this imagery of fire, God's fire is burning all the time. It's an eternal flame. And for the righteous, it doesn't harm them, but rather it empowers them. It serves them as the source of their energy, of their life. But for the wicked, who are represented here by the dead stubble, by the dry chaff, by the rotten roots and the withered flowers, for the wicked, when they come in contact with the the very same flame that that enriches and enlivens the righteous when they come in with when the wicked come in contact with that it becomes a raging inferno that destroys so the truth the truth is self-evident and sin brings judgment upon itself in other words again um The fire of God, uh, we could say it represents his holiness. We will see that in the very next chapter. And it, it, it is burning always. And the wicked, when they come into contact with it, are destroyed. Verse 26 He will also lift up a standard to the distant nations and will whistle for it from the ends of the earth. It's interesting imagery, right? And behold, it will come with speed swiftly. No one in, in it is weary or stumbles. None slumbers or sleeps, nor is the belt at its waist undone, nor is the sandal strap broken. Its arrows are sharp and all its bows are bent. The hooves of its horses seem like flint and its chariot wheels like a whirlwind. Now we have to ask what in in this, uh, what is this standard that is being lifted up? It is a distant nation in itself. And as we see, it is prepared for warfare. Verse 28, its arrows are sharp and its bows are bent. The hooves of the horses seem like flint and its chariot wheels like the whirlwind. Its roaring is like a lion and it roars like young lions. It growls as it seizes the prey and carries it off with no one to deliver it. 
and it shall growl over it in that, in that day like a roaring of the sea. If one looks to the land, behold, there is darkness and distress. Even the light is darkened by its clouds. Um, it's important for us to understand that the judgment of God is not so much his, his action against his people, but the lifting of this protecting, protective hedge that he has around them and letting the collective forces of the world or of evil overrun them. Um, that is the characteristic of God's judgment as we see it here. Uh, Isaiah, the vision here, again, is of a nation coming against uh, Judah. And who is that nation? Well, we can, we, all we have to do is do a little uh, uh, digging in the historical record, and we discover that it's Assyrian, the Assyrians that are preparing to overrun them. Now, most of us take for granted God's protective hedge around our life. Um, if, however, he lifted that hedge for just a moment, oh dear, yes, is, is the right response because we would be swiftly taken by the world and by, by, uh, by the evil around us. Now, um, that is the fate that awaits Judah and Jerusalem in the coming Assyrian invasion. And if anyone still thinks here that God, is, uh, God doesn't take sin seriously, uh, Isaiah's vision here of the fire and this, this, this banner or this standard, this nation, uh, should dispel the notion that God doesn't take sin seriously. He absolutely does take it seriously. Although the wrath of God's judgment seems to be um, complete here in the images of the fire and the, the banner that or the standard that is coming against Judah, the purpose here is still the redemption of his people. So when sin becomes so deeply ingrained in the soul of a person or in a society such as Judah, the purging of fire by the lifting of God's protective hand may indeed be the only remedy. Um, test is whether or not sin has corrupted the center, the center of the soul. Uh, can, as, and as a result, contaminating all the parts of the individual or the corporate society, the corporate body. God will then restore um, through a radical measure, a radical measure to fulfill his redemptive purposes. Now, that radical measure, as we see here, is indeed the overrunning of Judah by the enemy and eventual, eventually the hauling off of its people into captivity. 
So um, just a review, the, the, uh, the personal takeaways, sin is self-destructive. Um, the truth is self-evident and sin brings judgment upon itself. How that works, how that looks in our lives um, is, is the fact that, that um, we will, we will and uh, bear the, the natural consequences of transgressing God's, God's law, God's directives. We will bear the natural consequences of that. The judgment of God is not so much aggressive against uh, his aggressive action against sinful people, but the lifting, again, of his protection. And when sin becomes so deeply ingrained, the purging of fire by the lifting of God's protection may be the only remedy. I I know that some of you um, have prayed for loved ones for years, who seem to be ingrained in sin. Um, And they're bearing the consequences of that as a result. Some of you have dared to pray the prayer, Lord, meet them at the bottom. Because for some, the only point of turnaround is the bottom. And that's what God is expressing here at the end of Isaiah chapter five. Now we're going to go right on into chapter six because it is then the continuation of the story. Chapters one through five, we see that Israel had become too complacent um, in its and it's in its estimation of its own security it's been it's become complacent too complacent to heed the warnings of god and it's also become too corrupted in its prosperity to escape the wrath of god in a very real sense they have exhausted the grace of god now we often talk about the grace of god as not having an end point. And I think we, we can clearly see that even here in Isaiah, given the fact that God's wrath has redemption at its heart. It has redemption in its purpose. But there is a point at which God will say no more. Now, um, That's where we are here in Isaiah with Judah. Now, chapters 6 through 12 pick up, they become kind of a second section, if you will, uh, in the the progression through the entire book of Isaiah. And And it reveals, it reveals the reality of hope and hope delivered. So in the recap of of chapters 1 through 5, Judah appears to have exceeded the boundaries of God's grace. They've gone beyond the the edge here. 
chapter 5, verse 4 through 6, the beginning of chapter, uh, or verse 6, reads, What more was there to do for my vineyard than I have not already done for it? That's God's question. Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now, let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. That is God's... God's... um, that's the end of his grace, it seems, for them. So God has, uh, so, so we have to ask the question, okay, so has the Lord really come to the end of his grace? Has he come to the end as far as his people are concerned? Is he ready to wipe them out? Well, chapter six, again, takes up the story from that, the point of that question. Isaiah starts his ministry. If you, if you look back at chapter 1, verse 1, he starts his ministry during the reign of Uzziah. And um, Uzziah uh, is mentioned here in verse 1 of chapter 6. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. We have to step back here and ask, what is the context of this vision? The context is an extreme crisis in the leadership of Judah. Um, I invite you to turn to 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 15. Second Kings chapter 15. There we read, In the 27th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Azariah, the son of Amaziah, the king of Judah, became king. Azariah is the same as Uzziah. He was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. Verse 3, he did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. But then verse 4, only the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Though Uzziah was considered a good king, this is one thing, one place he neglected to lead. Verse 6, now the rest of the acts of Azariah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? The answer to that question is yes. And they happen to be found in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. Would you go there? This entire chapter chronicles for us, no pun intended, uh, chronicles for us the reign of Uzziah. And I'm going to, I'm just going to skip through here for us to pick up the context in which Isaiah chapter 6 is written. 
We're going to start with verse 3. We've already established in, in uh, 2 Kings the, these words. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. That's a long time in the scope of the reign of the kings of, of Judah and the kings of Israel. He did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He continued to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding through the vision of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. That's important. Now, verse 6, we see that Uzziah was very successful in warfare. Now, he went out and warred against the Philistines. Verse 7, God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabians. Verse 8, the Ammonites also gave tribute to Uzziah. That means they paid taxes to him. They, they paid uh, uh, taxes so that he wouldn't overwhelm them. And his fame extended to the border of Egypt, for he became very strong. Moreover, Uzziah built towers. He built towers in Jerusalem. Verse 10, he built towers in the wilderness. And he hewed out many cisterns. Now, why is that important? Well, um, the land of Judah is on the, the same latitude as Phoenix, Arizona. What is, the, what is the landscape like here in Arizona? It's desert, right? And it's been desert for millennia. And uh, water is scarce. And so Uzziah was not only successful in, uh, in warfare, in conquering others, he was also success, successful in building um, fortification against invaders and supplying the needs of his people. Uh, verse 11, moreover, Uzziah had an army ready for battle. That's unique. That, uh, and and it's, you look through uh, verse 12 and 13, and you see the numbers that are there. There's, they are very significant. Verse 14, moreover, Uzziah prepared for, for all the armies, shields, spears, helmets, body armors, bows, and sling stones. In other words, he gave them the weaponry that they needed. In Jerusalem, he made engines of war invented by skillful men to be on the towers and on the corners for the purpose of shooting arrows and great stones. Now, what is that? Engines of war. That sounds like well, maybe Henry Ford helped him out. I don't know. No, what this is speaking of is mechanical armaments. Um, the ability to sling large stones out into any oncoming army. Um, it's really interesting that what we see here documented is... Uh, somewhat of an industrial revolution that takes place in the, in the time of Uzziah in regard to preparation for war. Um, 
Hence his fame spread afar, for he was marvelously helped until, until he was strong. Verse 16, but when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. For he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Then Azariah, the priest, entered after him, and with him 80 priests of the Lord, valiant men. And they opposed Uzziah, the king, and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who were consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful and will have no honor from the Lord God. It's interesting that in our day and age, we have this uh, contest be going on in our country between what are supposed to be equal arms of government holding one another accountable. And we see a similar thing taking place here. Uzziah entered the temple. He was not a priest. He entered the temple to burn incense to God. And he was called out by the priests. Called out. Not only was he called out by the priest, but he experienced the judgment of the Lord. Look at this. Verse 19. But Uzziah, with a censer in his hand for burning incense, was enraged. And while he was enraged with the priests, I can just see it. Uzziah is saying to the priests, how dare you talk to me that way? Don't you know who I am? I'm the king of Judah. And I am powerful in warfare. I am known all over the inhabited earth. And I can do whatever I want. He's enraged. And while he was enraged with the priest, the leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord, beside the altar of incense. Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him and behold, he was leprous on his forehead. And they hurried him out of there. And he himself also hastened to get out because the Lord had smitten him. King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. And he lived in a separate house, being a leper. For he was cut off from the house of the Lord. And Jotham, his son, was over the king's house, judging the people of the land. I think very often when we read Isaiah chapter 6 and we hear the year that King Uzziah died, we have this romantic idea of, wow, this was a crisis in Isaiah's life and, and, and the Lord spoke to him through that crisis. And I have to say, yes, it probably was. But there's a backstory. And the backstory matters.
So what is this? How would we boil down this crisis in leadership that we see here? I think we can boil it down to one word. Arrogance. Arrogance. It's important to know that arrogance is the natural result of power and success among humans. Let me say that again. It's the natural result. It, that's, that's what happens when we become powerful and successful. We tend to be arrogant. Sir John Dahlberg, Acton, was an English Catholic historian politician and a writer and he penned these words that many of us are familiar with but few of us know the origin power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely great men are almost always bad men that's what he said in his letter that he wrote to an Anglican bishop and I think there's great truth in those words. Uzziah was a good king for 52 years. But he became arrogant and he profaned the temple. And as a result, he contracted leprosy and he died in shame. The arrogance of Uzziah was reflected in the very men and women in his circle of influence in Judah. We read about them in chapter 3. Remember pride and arrogance of the men and the women of Judah? And God has no tolerance for that. So what is God's response? Well, the leprosy is, is one of his responses. But let's look at chapter one, or excuse me, verses one through three of chapter six. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, they covered his face, with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We see here the picture of God's sovereignty. The Lord sitting on a throne. His supreme authority. He's lofty and exalted. He is above every other so-called God. And the train of his robe is filling the temple. It's expansive. It's all-inclusive. It's pervasive power. This business of seeing God has great gravity. Exodus 33, we see the picture of Moses on the mountain um, there where he received the Ten Commandments. And he says to God, I pray you, show me your glory. And God said, I myself will make my goodness 
pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion to whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. This business of seeing God has grave consequences to it. Even the heavenly creatures around the throne cover their faces. Now, this is the picture. This is the picture of God's response to the arrogance that he sees in Judah. We're not going to go there, but there's a whole side eddy study of um, this business of what it means for God to reveal himself. Throughout the scripture, we see numerous times where God reveals himself in a visible form. But God is spirit. As Jesus says, you must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, verse 4 of Isaiah chapter 6, And the foundations and the and the, of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, that's Isaiah, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, Woe is me, for I am ruined. It's interesting, in the previous chapter, we saw the listing of six woes. And now Isaiah, those were, those were um, directed toward the people of Judah. But here Isaiah is saying, woe is me. The word ruin means to be struck dumb, to be silent to be utterly undone, unable to speak. And he says, it's because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. You see, the, the, the condition of being unclean applies to Isaiah and the people that he lives among. In a very real way, guilt here is both individual and it's corporate. The guilt belongs to all of them individually and all of them together. And Isaiah doesn't miss that. So we back up here. Where did we start this chapter? We started it with the arrogance of Uzziah. He dies. He dies a shameful death because of that. What is God's antidote for arrogance? It's the revelation of his sovereignty and his holiness. The result, the result of encountering God in his sovereignty and the, the wonder I would say the awful and uh, even terrorizing wonder 
of his holiness is conviction. Honest recognition of our own depravity and the necessity, the absolute necessity of God's grace. I don't know about you, but the turning point in my life, I mean, I grew up in the church and I was, I, I thought I was pretty good and, and things went well for me and I loved God. But the turning point in my life came when I encountered just the absolute depravity of my soul, the filthiness of my sin. That's hard to grapple with. It's not a passing fancy. It's not a passing vision. It sticks with you. And when it does, you are forever smitten. It's interesting that one who beholds God, according to what the Lord says to Moses, the result of seeing the face of God is death. It's important for us to understand that until we come to terms with our own depravity and deal honestly with the fact that we really do deserve death, it's only there that we encounter. We sang about joy earlier. It's only there that we really encounter the joy of salvation. It's only there that we encounter new life. It, the, uh, there's an author, uh, several authors put a book together called Conversions um, years ago, and it chronicled the conversion of uh, heroes of the faith, including um, the Apostle Paul, uh, even to the present day, like guys, guys like Charles Colson and people in between like Augustine and Calvin and Bunyan and Wesley and Spurgeon. And in every single one of their conversion experiences, they had four common themes. Number one was the absolute agony of the soul. Coming face to face with the reality, the density of their sin. And the stab of their, of their conscience. Number three, the shame of their inward uncleanness. And number four, the remorse for their sin and the sensation of being lost and alone. Those, one of our takeaways is this, those who persist in pride will not experience any of those because they will not have encountered the sovereignty and holiness of God. To the Jewish mind, the, the, the lips speak of motives of the heart, the decisions of the will. Um, 
Jesus said himself, that which proceeds out of the mouth is what comes from the heart. That's uh, in, emblematic of a, a Jewish idiom, that their, their way of understanding how speech really works. So when Isaiah is confessing through his lips, woe is me for I'm a man of unclean lips, what he's saying is that even my heart, even my heart is unclean. So when he sees the holiness of God, he begins to ask the question, how in the world can I even survive this, much less speak for God? He who pronounced woes upon the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem for betraying their trust is now confessing the very same sin in himself. Verse six. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand and he, that he had taken from the altar with tongues. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. Take note here. One of the seraphim flew to me. What do seraphim do? They are their servants of God and they only move upon the command of God himself. So we know that God is taking the initiative here. God is approaching Isaiah. He's revealing himself to him, verses two and three. He's convicting Isaiah, verses four and five. And now he's cleansing Isaiah. And the truth is, is that it is the same for us. He reveals himself to us. He convicts us of our sin. And then he cleanses us. It's interesting that in the Old Testament, fire is not typically seen as a cleansing agent. It's typically destructive or judgment. But here, the coal is taken off the altar. The altar. What is the altar about? It is about the substitutionary sacrifice that cleanses us from sin. The altar is where the sacrifice was made. And so we see here in the live coal, we see the atonement. We see the, here's a big 25 cent word, the propitiation for our sin. We've talked about that previously on the weekends, months back. That's the idea that God himself steps forward to make the payment and the payment is his life for us. Jesus, Paul, Paul records that Jesus, he himself is the propitiation for our sin. The satisfaction, the forgiveness, the cleansing, the reconciliation. 
So Isaiah here is this doomed sinner, but he is, it's interesting that God doesn't leave anything left to Isaiah's imagination because what does he do? He says through the voice of the, the seraphim, behold, this has touched your lips and it's taken away your sin. It's taken from the altar. Your sin has been paid for by the ransom given. That's what atonement means. The word taken away in in verse 7 means to call back, to pluck away, to remove completely. But not only does he say that, he says your sin is forgiven. That means That means to cover, to cancel, to make atonement for, to cleanse, to pardon, to forgive. In other words, the correct sum was given to pay your debt. It's satisfactory to God. Verses 8 and beginning of verse 9. Then I heard a voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. And he said, go. Go and tell this people. It's interesting that the immediate effect of atonement is reconciliation. That's good news, isn't it? It's reconciliation. Isaiah first saw the Lord far away, and now he is near. God asked, so, so close that he hears God say, who will go for us? It's curious. Take note. Who will go for us, not go for me? It's a plural idea. Speaks of the Trinity. Isaiah had once been silenced by his own sin, but now he's redeemed and free to speak. Isaiah, the God who convicted him has now pardoned him. So what is this mission that he is given? Verses 9 and 10. He said, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, with their ears, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Well, my goodness, wait a second. Isn't that what we want? That's confusing, isn't it? God said, go and tell this people. Go and tell them the truth because it will cause them to stop up their ears. It will cause them to close their eyes. It will cause them to harden their hearts. In other words, the continuation of their rebellion, they will refuse to hear. They will refuse to see. They will refuse to understand what it takes for them to be healed. In other words, they will refuse to turn around. Jesus even quotes Isaiah, this very passage in response to the question, Jesus, why do you speak to the people in parables? 
After, after he told the parable of the, we, say, we often call it the parable of the sower and the seed. It's really kind of the parable of the soils because that's really what makes all the difference. And Jesus' response is this very passage so that the prophecy of Isaiah would be fulfilled. He follows that quote by saying, blessed are your eyes because you see and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see but did not see it and hear what you hear but did not hear it. So if you'll note that passage, he, he starts with, the outer, the hearing, and the seeing, and the inner, the understanding, and the discerning, and the perceiving. And then he rearranged the, re- rearranges them and goes backwards through that same list. The heart, the ears, the eyes. Then the eyes, the ears, and the heart. And what that does is it emphasizes the the reality that there seems to be an absolute inability to understand. And this is the truth that we take away from it. Those who resist the truth can be changed only by telling them the truth. But to do so is to expose them to the danger of rejecting the truth again. And perhaps... This this further rejection will push them beyond the point of no return. Isaiah um, goes on in verse 11. Then the Lord said, and then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until the cities are devastated and without inhabitants, houses without people, and land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away and forsaken places, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion on it, and it will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed, the holy seed is in the stump. There's a word of hope that is given here at the end of this passage that um, is so profound. We see the, the, the progression of destruction here, How, cities, houses, and fields, deportation, verse 12, and and. And then Isaiah's, this idea of Isaiah's response, how long, how long? And God's response is, until it's over. The, the takeaway here is that God, the call of God may see, seem impossibly hard, but fulfilling it requires only our willingness to be used. He will provide the strength to enable us to fulfill the call. God is not only speaking to Judah, but shaping Isaiah into a useful vessel himself. When we say, here I am, send me, God will not only use us for his purposes, but he will shape us into his image. 
Romans 8.28, we know that verse very well, but it's followed by verse 29. For those whom he foreknow, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. That's God's intention with us. And verse 30, and these whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Past tense. It's done. And here we see the refining work of God. Um, the, the prophet Malachi, who is a contemporary of Isaiah, speaks of um, God being like a refiner, the refiner of precious metals. And that, is, that happens by fire. God is at work here in Isaiah's life as well as in the life of Judah. Isaiah is being purified by fire and he's being shaped, he's being fashioned for use by God, finished off by God's personal touch. And that is the very process that God commits himself to with us as well. That doesn't necessarily come as a comforting word, does it? Except for the fact that God is at work in our lives for this end, to shape us in his image for the redemption of his people. The question is, how long do we persevere in this? And the, the answer is, until we're released. Because it's God's call, it's his, it's his call that we are responding to. One final thought. And again, verse 13. There'll be a tenth portion in it. And we'll again be subject to burning like the terebinth. What is the terebinth? It's, it's a hardwood, like an oak. Whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is in the stump. The imagery here is of death and life coming out of it. New life is revealed only after the dying. Jesus says himself in, in John chapter 12 that unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bear much, bears much fruit. He who loves me lo loses his life. And he who hates me, his life is in the world and he will keep it. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, my father will honor him. The idea that dying to live is found right here in Isaiah. So the guarantee of continuing until he comes uh, is wrapped up here as well. The, the continuing of, of God's people until Messiah comes is seen here as well. It, um, 
previously in chapter 4, we saw in that day the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. And that is what we see here in verse 13 again. The implication is that the people who carry the promise of Messiah carry the guarantee until he comes. Until he comes. And that is our hope. Lord, we thank you for your word, for the fact that it is life to us, and that as we as we encounter you in your holiness, in your sovereignty, if we're honest with ourselves, it brings us to the end of ourselves. But there is resurrection that takes place when we die. When we die to ourselves, Lord, you are, you are made alive in us. And we are brought to life spiritually in a way that could not have happened otherwise. We thank you for that transformative truth and for the fact that it is steadfast. It is not something that is fleeting. Thank you for your grace in keeping us in your grace keeping us even in the midst of the dying Lord, bringing us to life again. I ask that you would continue to speak to us through the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all.